Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 5, Episode 8. Today, we're speaking with prolific author Ken Albala, who has written, among many things, Eating Right in the Renaissance, Food in Early Modern Europe, The Banquet, Dining in the Great Courts of the Late Renaissance, Pancake by Recreant House, The Lost Heart of Real Cooking, Three World Cuisines, Italian, Mexican, Chinese, and The Lost Hearts of Earth and Home with Roseanne Nafziger. That's just among a few of his many voluminous work and entries in encyclopedias and anthologies. Um, really had a great time talking with Ken, and just we're just going to go right to it. He had a lot to say, and it was a great conversation. Here we go. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. Today, I'm very honored to have on my podcast Professor Ken Albala, Professor of History at the University of the Pacific, and author, co-author of over 25 books, and also has a YouTube channel. Ken, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, for our guests who are not familiar with your work, and it's very prodigious, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a food historian, and that means that I write books about what people ate in the past, ideas that they had about eating in the past, like medicinal qualities of food, how religion intersects with food, how fine dining worked. So I'm, and I'm also a culinary historian. What that means is I'm really interested also in how people cooked and what they ate. Um, those are two slightly different things. They, they're subsets of each other, but, but still slightly different. Um, and I teach history in general at the University of the Pacific. So that's um, early modern Europe is really my specialty. Now, I've always loved food history, and I find it to be something that's eminently fascinating. How do, what, uh, what does being a food historian mean for you? Well, it can mean different things for many different people. I'm a professional historian, which means that I've got a teaching job, you know, right. with that pays that pays the bills. Um, but there are a lot of people who um, are, I would say, are food writers or journalists or just interested in food history through other venues, through um, museums, through uh, live reenactment in historic sites, through libraries sometimes. So, so there are many ways you can become a food historian. There's um, yeah, and get paid for it, <laughs> but I just happen to be the you know academic type. Now you have a prodigious output of written work, and are the author, an editor, or co-editor of over twenty-five books on food, as well as other publications. Where did when did this begin for you? It it just began as because I needed a dissertation topic, <laughs> and my advisor. <laughs> Like, I really didn't know what I was going to write about, something in the Renaissance, and I'd already, you know, I was in a history department at Columbia, and um, my advisor suggested I go to the New York Academy of Medicine. I really don't know why, and I found a cache of um, dietary treaties written um, between 1450 and 1650 that were housed there, and I thought, this will be a nice topic, and I sat down and read them all. It took about three and a half years. Um, they were in half a dozen different languages and very technical kind of writing, but that became my dissertation and eventually my first book, which was called Eating Right in the Renaissance. So it was really by chance. I could have ended up anywhere, but I figured if I'm going to do something, you know, for the rest of my life, I better really like it as a topic. And, um, you know, it wasn't really a, an academic field then. There were people who had written had books about it, and I kind of lucked out in that um, 
Carol Bynum Walker was in the Department of Columbia and she'd written a book on the importance of food to women. So it was kind of legitimized in the history department there in a way that it wasn't in other departments because about the same time Jacques Pepin wanted to do a, a dissertation on French cooking through the French department and they said, no, you can't do this, that's not serious. So it really is, is just chance. Um, so I think I was kind of the first generation of people who went through really just writing about food and nothing else. Now, as a um, food historian, are uh, television shows and movies ever very frustrating for you to watch? Because isn't it usually the ubiquitous <laughs> chicken? They're always eating chicken all the time. Well, you know, it's very, very funny you should mention that because um, the other night I did a gig at the Getty Museum, which is right over my shoulder right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, it was about Henry VIII and the court um, painter Holbein, who did portraits and such. And I was talking about the food and everyone thinks immediately of Charles Lawton with a big chicken shoving it in his mouth and throwing it over his shoulder and, and you know, com and complaining where, why don't people have manners anymore? And it was a funny scene, but completely, completely wrong because people of course did have manners. They prided themselves on their elegant manners and food was eaten with their fingers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's grotesque. You know, food was sliced very um, nicely and put on little uh, squares of bread, um, trenchers to sop it up. So it was not was not um, grotesque at all. Now you have a great series on YouTube that I want to recommend to our listeners. It's a lot of really fun and really engaging interview uh, interviews on there. Well, um, let me re I'll edit that out. You have very many. Uh, really wonderful videos where you talk about various subjects and actually show some uh, cooking as well. Um, I want to ask you about your YouTube videos and also how many hats do you own? <laughs> well, so what happened with those hats? I, I really love hats. So I've got maybe, I don't know, a lot, a lot of hats. Me too. But the funny thing is, is this uh, came about when I was teaching a course on alcohol and intoxicants. And I had the idea to flip the course, which means that the content I put it all on YouTube and then I thought we could have discussion in class instead and listen to music and look at art and talk about alcohol you know, from a cultural vantage point. It didn't work at all. <laughs> like the students didn't watch the videos and they came to class not prepared and saying like, what, what, why are we just chatting in class? And I was like, you didn't kind of get it. So it's reverted back to the way it was. I talk it, I deliver that as a class now, but the um, videos are all a remnant of that. Um, so, but I just decided halfway through that I'd put on another hat to look silly um, while I was doing it. But there's a lot of other stuff that are my classes that were recorded during um, COVID. So, so when we shut down, I thought, let me just put my stuff on YouTube. Anyone can access it. Apparently not everywhere in the world. My students in China couldn't get to it. So that was a pain in the neck. But otherwise, um, the things I don't really have, a, I mean, I, I have a presence on YouTube, but I don't have a, a conscious channel where I put things regularly. It's really just a place that I put videos that I want people to, to have access to. Um, the great courses are, are now, it's, it's changed its name now, and I can't remember what it's called now, but it's, um, that's really where I do most of my video work, is in, in a series called uh, Food, A Cultural Culinary History and uh, another series called Cooking Across the Ages. One is just my food history course, and the other is me cooking historic recipes in my kitchen and, and having a lot of fun. There's a lot of really good feedback and, on, on the videos, and for good reason, you do a really great job. I know for myself personally, it really helps when somebody shows a process, especially one that they wouldn't normally be involved in normally. Like when you show, I think it's called nixtamalization, when you do the... Uh, 
quesadillas, I believe the corn, you use corn, ground corn, but you show yourself actually doing it. And it's, I think a lot, it's, I I find it much preferred than like reading about it because when you read about it, you're like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. It really helps to see somebody actually do it. Yeah. And I think it's actually necessary to learn about the past. If you want to get a sense of the physical labor involved in something, then you've really got to, you know, try the recipes and do them and follow the directions. I find people often just say, oh, well, this doesn't sound good. So I'll do something else or I'll substitute this ingredient or I'll use this modern gadget. And the recipes just don't work. And then they think, oh, people in the past had no taste and and the food is terrible. But, but it's, but I think Without exception, when I cook something and I follow the recipe and don't veer at all, it turns out magnificent. And it's, it's very funny you should mention the um, quesadillas because I did that uh, with a friend, Max Miller, who has a, has a really fantastic YouTube channel. Um, and I'm going to be on his show tomorrow. We're, we're recording. That's, that's also why I'm staying around um, in L.A. Um, this weekend. So um, and we're doing uh, another 17th century recipe, which is chicken with cherries, um, and it's cooked in a pipkin, and it's just a, a lovely, lovely recipe. Um, so I think that'll be great fun. Now, I want to ask you, um, as somebody who is a history professor, were you like interested in history when you were a young boy, and did you just like go into it because you knew you'd always get into it, or did you have to think about it once you get into college what you wanted to do? Was there a choice there? Gosh, you know, I was always interested in history when I was a little kid, but I was really into theater um, and music and played the piano and sang and did things like that. And I think my parents at one point consciously said, this is a nice hobby. You can't do this as a profession. And I believe them. Um, And I think probably they were right. You know, it's certainly acting is a very, very hard profession. Not that being an academic is easy. It's not. In fact, there's many, I think many more um, casualties of of academic, um, you know, jobs than than acting. But um, but I didn't really even know I wanted to be a historian until my second round in graduate school. I, I had a interdisciplinary undergraduate major and then I was sort of getting deeper into history um, when I got an MA at Yale. And then when I went to Columbia, it was just like, okay, I now have to commit myself to history, but I still do a lot of art history. And I still you know, think about things in a very dis- interdisciplinary way. And I think that kind of equipped me to do food history very well because it's also radically interdisciplinary. You know, part of it, some of it is in anthropology, some is in sociology, some is in communication, some is in, you know, it's it's all over the map. So so that would was I think it was it was helpful that I wasn't narrowly trained as a historian. Right. Um, tell us about one of your most recent books. You've written over um, it says over 25 books and I looked at your listing just on Amazon and it was pretty impressive. Um, one of your most recent books is Noodle Soup, Recipes, Techniques, and Obsession. Talk to us about that and how you were inspired to write that book. Well, there's a funny story that goes along with it. Um, I was teaching a course on alcohol um, at uh, Boston University, and they gave me a very nice apartment, and it had a full kitchen. And I was there, I think, for six weeks and doing research also, and there was not a single pot or pan or spoon even in the kitchen and I thought I'm not spending this time time here eating out every night you know I'm going to cook I'm going to figure this out and I just went down to the little Chinese grocery down the street and found a little uh, you know pot and a pair of chopsticks and some ramen and I literally just started cooking noodle soup because I thought I want something interesting for breakfast and then adding vegetables to it and some shrimp or chicken or something 
And I thought, this is so much fun. <laughs> Why have I not been doing this for so many years? And I couldn't stop, you know, doing making noodle soup. And then eventually I said, I thought I better just get a book out of this um, because I learned to make the noodles by hand, how to, you know, do the stock properly. And just, it became a real, um, well, about a year and a half, I had noodle soup every single morning for breakfast. So, and then I started putting strange things in them and making them out of vegetables or using um, very, very different techniques. So that, so the noodle soup book was, um, it was partly historical and, you know, and partly international, you know, culinary history, but a lot of it was just my experimentation and having fun in the kitchen. And I guess you get to a certain point in your career where you think, okay, I don't need to have a, you know, it was actually University of Illinois Press, so it was peer reviewed, but it was, you know, not the kind of serious academic scholarship I usually do. This was really more experimental. Now, um, I've noticed in my lifetime, I've seen noodles grow in popularity in America. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I think the only noodle dish most of us knew of was like uh, spaghetti and meatballs when I was a kid. That was a traditional thing. And then, you know, whatever hot dish some relative made, but um, I've seen the growth of it. I remember when like instant brick ramen became popular in the United States and yeah. that blew up and, uh, you know, everybody was eating that. And then noodles, noodle dishes, noodle bars have opened up everywhere. Yeah, yeah, totally. seeing it everywhere. Totally. And like, well, I remember, sorry, go ahead. I think it's partly, you know, thanks to Momofuku Ando, who invented the instant ramen noodle. Um, I had a chance before the pandemic to speak at, at there is, in fact, a world um, instant noodle summit <laughs> that, that happens every year in Japan. I was the keynote speaker there a couple of years ago, and, I, and it was like, it was just an amazing thing because the manufacturers from all around the world came there, and these are, you know, they feed millions upon millions of people <laughs> with instant noodles. And I don't know whether, you know, they really wanted me to, to hear me say, you know, that you should make noodles by hand and they're much better. But, but, but in any case, I think he, you know, introduced Asian noodles to mainstream America um, through the cup, cup of noodles or cup noodles as they're called now. And um, people then discovered real ramen and real Japanese noodles and Chinese noodles and Southeast Asian and then pho. And then, you know, so it's been this sort of avalanche of interesting noodle dishes, not just soup, but also, you know, fried noodles, pad thai fits in there too. And I think the thing that people didn't maybe realize is noodles don't have to be made out of wheat. It can be made out of rice or mung bean or um, sweet potatoes or, you know, or and basically anything, any kind of starch will make a great noodle. You can make a noodle out of a potato too. Um, so that was, you know, I think fun to bring all those disparate cultures together into one book. I remember seeing, uh, there was a scene in early in Blade Runner where uh, Harrison Ford's character started eating some noodles. And then I, f I swear, like I've seen it so many other times in movies over the course of years where the tough guy is eating a, a bowl of uh, Asian inspired noodles. And it's just like, seems to be an interesting trope we've seen. And do you think that has like any kind of bearing on the popularity of it over time? <laughs> it's, I don't remember that scene at all, but man, I'll, I'm going to have to go back and watch it now. It's really um, early, like in the first five minutes. Yeah, I don't remember that, but um, I'm trying to think if it's just exposure to Asian culture in general and, and cuisine especially. I think our exposure to sushi happened at the same time, you know, in the 80s. Yes. And Japanese restaurants 
and Asian restaurants in general, Korean, Vietnamese, um, started opening up. And I think people's palate really expanded in a way that, you know, freed them from, you know, meat and potatoes <laughs> kind, of, kind of eating. Now, um, you have a book called Beans, a History um, that was a winner of a 2008 IACP Greg Grigson Award. Can you talk to us about that book a little bit? Yeah, so that was just a project that happened on a sabbatical. I sat down and said, hmm, what do I write about? <laughs> and I'd realized that almost all the um, interesting single subject food topics have been taken. You know, corn by Betty Fussell and cod by Mark Kurlansky. And my friend Andy Smith had already done, you know, tomatoes and <laughs> peanuts. And, and I said, I just have to do one of these for kicks, you know, because it sounds so good. And I literally just picked beans out of a hat. <laughs> and, and it turned out to be, um, you know, I'd never written, a, you know, a, a book focused on one ingredient. So I had to not just find all the ingredients themselves, because there, there are hundreds of bean species, things that we would never think of as beans at all, you know, like tamarind or, um, well, peanuts, obviously, but but they're, but it was fun because I cooked them all and I did research on them all and I just put it together as this pithy little book, which um, was a ball to write. And, and the trope of, of the book was that each of these beans has their own kind of character and <laughs> treated them like humans, you know, and, and wrote about them as if, you know, there were some nefarious ones and some really sweet ones and some that were like Cinderella that looked really ugly and turned out to be beautiful in the end, like soy. So it was just a, you know, a, a, an exercise in writing more than anything else. Um, from what you've learned about beans, do you think that Americans make any mistakes with cooking beans or like, you know, in our, or the way we prepare them? Well, I don't know whether we make mistakes, but I think the people who sell most of the beans in this country make a big mistake <laughs> in putting them in, in warehouses and letting them sit there for years. But at that time we get them, they're stale. Uh, and they take a lot of soaking and a lot of cooking and they cause intestinal distress to some people. And I think you don't have any of those problems if you buy fresh beans. And happily, those uh, beans are beginning to be sold fresh. You know Rancho Gordo, uh, Steve oh, Sando, yes. does a one, wonderful job with fresh beans. And I have never soaked any of his beans. I just throw them in the pot and salt, go, and they're perfect. So I, so I think I think that the public is is coming around and of course people who've been eating beans for a long time people of mexican or, or latin american descent or uh, indian people have been cooking beans and the turnover in those groceries is much quicker so the beans are fresher i think i want to circle back to your book you mentioned earlier eating right in the renaissance can we talk a little bit about that book sure so that was my dissertation um if anyone is interested in becoming an academic out there let me tell you that Writing a dissertation is a luxury you will never have again in your life. It's a wonderful time. You get to sit back and do nothing, basically. I mean, I taught a course, you know, every year, but it was a time I had to focus and really plunge very, very deeply for many years into a topic without having a full teaching load and committee work and children to get to, <laughs> to daycare. And, you know, and so, so it, was, it was really um, an extraordinary luxury. And and so much fun to do. And I look back on that and think, how the hell did I do that? It was, it was just, just, you know, um, it was just being able to focus I think, and, and spend a lot of time on it. I don't think I've ever written a book as complicated or as, um, that took so much research to do as that one. 
was what uh how how difficult was the research for that book specifically or dissertation well, i should say well part of it was that i'd never written anything before really so um but the other part was that i just had a, basically a whole filing cabinet full of notes that were that i went back to and sometimes I had actually taken the notes themselves in Latin. And so I couldn't read what I had written. You know, I was just reading stuff in, in medical Latin is not really too difficult, but, but the notes sometimes were also, and I was like, okay, now I've got to put this together. But it was, um, it was not difficult, you know, writing it um, was, was a breeze. It was just having the patience to sit in a chair for, you know, all day and focus on a book. And somehow I did that. Um, the, and the, the literature was really, amusing and entertaining and, and funny sometimes, surprisingly so. I mean, this, these were a lot of popular diet books, basically. And so I kind of wanted to make sense of what people thought was good to eat. And it has a lot to do with their recovery of classical um, authors like Hippocrates and Galen, partly uh, getting rid of the Arab authorities who were, who were predominant in the, in the uh, Middle Ages. And then eventually, getting rid of those authors and saying these these authors really don't work for, for the especially for the new world products they were getting and when they began their research in physiology at a very very you know simple level they realized the whole new world theory just doesn't work so other theories came out of the woodworth mechanical and chemical theories and, and by the 17th century very very interesting um uh sort of change in physiological theory and change in ideas about digestion and change about what's go what's going on in our body that takes several centuries to go through but but I would say I'm really the maybe it's maybe it's a dubious honor but <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the expert on that topic um that I'm the only person who's really written about it is there anything that stands out from your uh, memory of the work that you'd like to mention to anybody that's listening Oh gosh. Well, so the thing that I that I always find amusing is that we think this humoral theory is just something of the past and it's totally disappeared. But when when authors in the past describe things in terms of hot, cold, dry, or moist, we still use those terms in terms those in when we talk about flavor. So if we talk about a chili pepper being hot, it's not hot temperature-wise, it's hot because it burns your tongue. It's the effect it has on your body. When we talk about a martini being dry, it's liquid. It's clearly not dry, but it's dry because it has this apparent, you know, sort of a styptic effect on your tongue and dries out your tongue. So, so we weirdly still colloquially use numeral terms. And we still, of course, call the ailment a cold, right? <laughs> and so it's, so this, there's remnants of it. Um, and, and of course, it, it still exists in, um, medicine, curanderos in South America still use it. It still exists in Northern India in Unani uh, medicine also. So it's not a, it's still a living system, weirdly enough. You co-edited a work titled The Business of Food, Human Cuisine, Food and Faith. Uh, what can you tell me about this uh, work? Okay, these are three works. <laughs> so those are three different books. Oh um, my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Um, the, but I can tell you about each of those. So, so two of them I edited with a friend of mine, Gary Allen, who um, so sorry just uh, suggested uh, this was in the, in a series I edited for Greenwood Press, and we just thought the business of food would be something fun to do. And by editing, I, many people don't quite understand what that means. Um, is an encyclopedia or a reference work or an edited volume means that there's someone who is, puts the whole thing together, right. finds the author, puts in the chapters or the entries or the 
you know, sections of the whole thing and gets other authors. So, so people often come to me and say, oh, you edited this book. And I was, they think I, I copy edited it. That's not, I didn't copy it. I, I put the whole thing together. I usually wrote a chapter or two. Um, and, and the same goes for encyclopedias that I've done also. So that business of food had maybe, oh, 50 or 60 different authors um, in it. Um, it was very funny because the other day I was, I was uh, listening to what, what a podcast and I was called out on it and, and the, uh, the people were talking about plums and cited me. And I was like, wait a minute, I've never said anything about plums. I don't know about plums. And I went back and looked at the citation and it's in an encyclopedia that I edited. So some author wrote it, you know, did it, but it wasn't, it's not me personally who wrote it. But in any case, the business of food was one. Human cuisine was an idea we had. We started toying with the idea of writing short stories about cannibalism, not from a terror angle, but from a funny angle in the way that humans eat each other sexually or, or metaphorically or, right. or in weird kind of ways that were, don't involve killing people. Um, although there's a little bit of that in there, but, and then, and we, shopped it around and of course no publisher would touch this <laughs> so we edited we published it ourselves and it was it was fine and um i did some the only piece of fiction i've ever written with, with another friend um, it, so it was so much fun um to do and some people bought it it was fine you know it was, it was just a lovely thing but the food and faith book was a serious academic um work i was working on fasting for many years and um uh, kathy eden and i decided to um um just put together a book on it and I wrote the introduction and the chapter and she wrote one and we just um you know did it as an edited book I think for Columbia University Press um you've also co-authored some cookbooks The Lost Art of Real Cooking and also The Lost Arts of Hearth and Home these two sound very interesting to me um and I, I think this would interest our our listeners as well can we talk about those books as well yeah, so those are the deep dive into the practicum of food history. Um, I didn't follow specific recipes. The intention was to do things, techniques that people would have known in the past that have disappeared and are not recorded in books, but people definitely did. So baking bread with sourdough, make curing salami without modern protocols or machinery or anything, curing, making pickles, and I still do a lot, a lot of pickling uh, from that project. And, um, and also uh, just anything that, that kind of had been replaced with modern techniques, we thought we would try and see if we could do the original techniques and see how they worked. So we we're complete beginners when the whole thing started and became over the course of several years, <laughs> no one else was doing this stuff really, because, you know, People were borrowing sourdoughs from others, not starting their own. People were using vinegar to make pickles and people were using chemicals to make, you know, cure meat at home. And so we just said, let's see if we can do it without any of that stuff. And it all worked. And we, we also distilled alcohol, which is really, really easy to do and fun. Um, and it, it turned into a second book, which was more um, included things about uh, housekeeping and uh, crafts and things that, that, that were, you know, not necessarily food, but had to do with the home. Um, and those are the only two books I've did that are really trade press. You know, there were Penguin Perigee did them um, and a lot, a lot of fun. Uh, 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 Rosanna Nafziger, now Rosanna Nafziger Henderson was my co-author. We met by accident. We never really even knew each other very well, but, but our talents kind of overlapped 
um, in very interesting ways. She was much better at jams and, and sweets and cheese making. She got, she was much better than, than I was. And I was better with the meats and uh, curing and smoking and doing things like that. So, so we fit together beautifully. And um, after the second book was written, it was it. We just, it was okay, we said what we wanted to do. Um, and that was a long time ago, a decade ago or so. Um, I was, when I was thinking about these questions, one thing that popped up for me was that I was talking to a, um, an author the other day and we were talking about the practice of people sitting around the table and eating and how that's kind of going by the wayside now. Or so I think, I mean, I, that's my theory anyway. So like, mm -hmm. I feel like oftentimes families aren't always eating together anymore, but is this idea of the family sitting around the dinner table, is this a real concept or is it one we've constructed from like middle-class life in America since the fifties and so is this, is this um, real or fallacy? I'm going to say it's both. Okay. I'm going to say that there have always been people who ate around a table. It is not the beaver cleaver, you know, um, monogamous, two parents, 2.5 kids. I've always felt really bad for that half a kid, you know, but, but the, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but because the, there's always been many other types of families and many other types of social groups and many people did not eat as a, as a family, sit down as a family. Um, but the larger question, so historically, it's not a fallacy, but it was never, you know, the rule. I think it's a much more interesting question now because it's a political issue, right? People uh, think that, it, you know, if, if a family doesn't hold together and if there's not a dinner table at which you discuss politics and talk about what your day was like, this is a whole, whole book by Janet Fleming, which I think is really good, um, says that you learn how to communicate and compromise at the dinner table and that you learn civility. I think Erasmus would have agreed with that. And that something is missing if people eat on their own. There's, you know, a no me not only, not only has consequences for their diet, but has consequences for, for, um, for society in, in large. Now, having said that, not everyone can eat, eat together at a table. Not, you know, people's work schedules are different. There's people have, uh, don't have the financial luxury of eating together. So I think it's kind of, you know, I think it's not fair for anyone to say, you should be eating at a dinner table, sitting down with your family. But I think if you have the wherewithal and somebody in the family wants to cook, my house, it's me. Um, when we, when I started having kids, I told my wife, the only, let there be only one rule in our household that we all eat dinner together. I don't care about anything else. You make all the other rules, you're in charge, but we have to sit down and eat together. And that's still, uh, that's always been the case, you know, and it's not been easy, you know, and, and putting dinner on the table, you know, for me has not always been easy, but, but I think it's, I think it's been important. Um, and, I, and I'm, you know, not, not trying to criticize people who can't do it because I know they can't. I, I mean, I know we, we, we enforce that at our house, but it's difficult to do. And I think the kids see their friends not doing it. And they're like, why are we unique? Like, why are we doing old fat? They, they always call it old fashioned stuff. And it's like, it's not necessarily old fashioned. It's just, you know, it's a good practice to have. It's, but right. I, I am hearing well, about a lot of people. Go ahead. You wouldn't come together otherwise, yeah. <laughs> you know, in my house, that's the one time we all are together. And I think it's, it's great. And I, you know, my older son now has, has his own family and they eat with us as often as, as they, you know, at least once a week or so, which is, which is lovely, you know, and it's just, it's just a nice time to gather. And it doesn't mean it's always pleasant. It doesn't mean it's always easy. 
And in my house, I have many, many picky people to, to eat, <laughs> to, to cook for. Oh, yeah. uh, my wife and I don't eat the same thing. And other people have, you know, their own picky. So I've always ended up cooking many different dishes and I just throw it on the table and they say, you eat whatever you want. But, but that's, and I understand not everyone has the time. I have time to cook and think about it, you know, and, and I like cooking, so it's not a chore for me, but, but it's hard, you know, and, and I just, that was, that was a personal choice. I'm not making that choice for anyone else. Yeah. Now, um, who are some food writers that you admire and follow? Oh gosh. Well, I've got a lot of colleagues who I really admire, um, in food history. Um, Rachel Lawden is up, is up there. Um, uh, Felipe Fernandez Armesto, uh, who wrote a book on food history. Um, uh, Krishnandu Ray and um, Fabio Parasecoli. These are all uh, people um, my, in my age, some are a little older, some are a little younger, but, but we're sort of the um, generation of food studies people who followed the real founders of the thing. People like, like um, Warren Belasco, who's a generation older than me. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of food writers out there who are um, I, sh I shouldn't say food writers, I should say food academics, food scholars who um, are in many different fields. Um, and yeah, I admire all of them. <laughs> so um, you are listed as a cultural ambassador to Aspectopia. Can you tell us <laughs> about that? Well, it has to do with the book that is in production right now um, about gelatin. And that really started as a dare. A friend of mine on Facebook dared me to join this group called Show Me Your Aspects. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not looking. And eventually I did look and I got completely hooked and I started making jello. And again, like other things, if you do something long enough, you say, I gotta get a book out of this. And I did um, and wrote it fairly quickly and, and became somehow beloved of that group um, they called me Jiggle Daddy, which is fine oh with me. <laughs> so, um, and then there were wonderful people. I have nothing, nothing but nice things to say about them. And there's a couple of breakoff groups also that are about aspects. So, and then after about a year and a half or so, uh, well into the pandemic, I said, okay, I've got enough material for a book. I turned it over to a publisher. Um, it took a year <laughs> to be reviewed I, because of COVID, of course, right. but, um, but I stopped making Jello. I just haven't haven't looked at it. I you know I've done it once or twice in the past year, more than a year. But what is really strange is when this book comes out. I'm hoping it'll be by the summer. Um, people are going to start asking me about Jello again. <laughs> and they're going to have to start cooking it again, which is fine. And I and I, but I have to admit, and maybe I shouldn't tell anyone this. I don't love Jello. <laughs> I just thought it was such a fascinating topic because it's come so in and out of fashion over time. It's, and it, it is generally reviled today. People make it, you know, aspects and 1950s era jellos as a matter of kitsch because they find it kind of funny and goofy and, and disgusting. Um, but there's good aspect out there. So, so half of this is a history of gelatin and the other half is my projection into the future of how gelatin will be revived. And I'm trying to spearhead that revival uh, most of them had alcohol in them. So they're kind of like jello shots. And in fact, one of the titles I was thinking of for the book was Not Your College Jello Shots. <laughs> they didn't want that. Um, but it's somewhere shots and aspic and gelatin is, is all in the, in the title that they 
the publisher decided. I saw on Instagram you had made a, a red wine, spiced red wine uh, jello, I believe. Was that you? So this, this was just this week, yeah. Um, and that was for um, this presentation I did at the Getty on Saturday. Um, the spiced wine jello, jello shot was a favorite of Henry VIII, believe it or not. <laughs> it looked really and nice. It was, it was great. It was just, just a fabulous thing. I mean, yeah, I saw a Roald Dahl cookbook where he um, did, it was a uh, meat aspic with uh, poached eggs floating in it. And I just thought, I know that somebody likes that, but that seems slightly nightmarish to me. Maybe vaguely Lovecraftian. Oh, it's, it's so much fun. In fact, I did one that was a reconstructed um, Eggs Benedict, but oh. without the bread, but it was all set in jello and it had a complete egg with the yolk in it. <laughs> And, the, and a layer of hollandaise sauce. You just cut into this thing and the egg yolk spurted, but it was jello. Um, well, I think the one that terrified people most was a, um, a BLT reimagined as jello. And that was, you know, <laughs> cut in, in a triangle with a little olive on a toothpick and the whole nine yards. And for some reason, that was, that was the one that people liked the most. Now I like, I like head cheese. And it's I guess- It's great, I love it too, yeah. I guess uh, soup, dumplings in a way start out with an aspect of gelatin in it so they are the same thing absolutely yeah. it's the meat jello but yeah i mean cold you know head cheese and, and salsa there's there's a hundred different things like that that are savory gelatins um fish aspect is great also now um i wanted to ask you what's next for you well, I've got a couple of things on the um, on the board. I might do a book on fermentation. Um, there's a lot of good books on fermentation out there. I was asked by Quarto to do one that would be nicely illustrated and um, inexpensive, and I, I, I hope that comes through. They have to; it's their job to sell it now. Um, I am under contract to do a book on aphrodisiacs, and for some oh. reason, I uh, wrote about half of it, and I hit a wall. And I said, the modern stuff just doesn't interest me. <laughs> so a friend of mine um, said she would write the second half. And I think it's due in a few months. So that's probably what I'm going to start doing when, I, when, when we get back after, um, when I get back home in a couple of weeks. The, um, I hope that works out. I, it, it, I, I think it will. And then what else do I have? I don't know. There's a few other projects that I have floating around. I did an entire book on breakfast, which apparently no trade press publisher is interested in apparently no one wants to buy a book on breakfast now so i might i know i made the same face so, i'm like that um, seems wrong <laughs> and it is it's a fun book i spent i wrote it over over the you know shut lockdown and i i'm thinking i might just publish it myself and say you know it doesn't matter i just as long as people get it i don't care about you know making a ton of money on it but i want people to read it so maybe um I just, I need, need it to be designed. That's really what it comes down to. I want it to look nice also. So I don't, I don't really ask this question of people much anymore, but you seem like the perfect guest to ask this question to. So I think it's the old question. If you were to have a di dinner party for people that are, let's say up to 10 people living or dead, uh, famous or not famous, uh, who would you invite and what would you prepare for them or order for them? Gosh, so my, my heroes, of, of course, are cooks <laughs> and food people. You know, I, I'm sure you ask people on the street and they're going to say, oh, Leonardo da Vinci. Although I might want to invite him because he's a hero also. But I think I would want to sit down with Bartolomeo Scappi 
who, who was a chef to the Pope in the mid 16th century. I would love to sit down with Lavarenne because no one knows a whole lot about him or with Guillaume Terrell, who was a chef in the Middle Ages, um, the author of The Form of Curie, who's, who's a, an English chef at the court of Richard II. Um, Amelia Simmons would be at the table representing the Americans. Um, I think um, uh, Elena Malakovets, who's a Russian uh, cookbook author from Imperial Russia in the late 19th century. It's, I think I really want, I want a, a room full of cookbook authors and then cook their dishes for them. <laughs> have them tell me what I'm doing wrong or something like that. Um, but, the, but I want to, I really want the insight. And of course, I'd, I'd want some anonymous people who could tell me what is not in the cookbooks. Um, you know, a late medieval bread recipe would be great. <laughs> you know, I want to know how they were doing this. Um, I want the guy, you know, the uh, Roman baker who made those loaves in Pompeii to tell me, you know, I, you know, they're they were charred in the, in the eruption and people have been arguing about how they were made for years and years. And I had a, a specific opinion about this because the the cuts just look so even that it doesn't look like you'd do it with a knife because they'd be uneven then. And there's a little knob in the top. So I think there must be some device that was pressed down into it. But the harder part for me was always why there's a ridge around the middle. And apparently there was a string. <laughs> the breads that I saw very close up didn't have any string on them. And then the one that went to San Francisco um, in an exhibit recently at the um, Palace of Legion Honor, um, uh, my friend William Rubel took pictures of it and there's a string. So I was wrong, <laughs> totally wrong about that. But I want to know, I want to like know how they, how they got them in and out of the oven, what kind of, you know, leaven they used, how many breads fit in the oven, I mean, things like that. I, I want a few of those anonymous cooks there too. Um, Momo Fukuhando I'd want also there. I met his children actually. Um, oh, nice. His son and his grandchildren, I spoke to at length, um, which was really, really nice. But, um, you know, I don't know. I want. I want a whole lot of people. People there. That sounds real fun. Well, thank you, uh, Ken. I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you. I'd love to have you come back sometime. I hope I can. It was great fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll stop here. That was my conversation with writer Ken Albala. Tune in next week with our conversation with author Anne Porer, The Body Joyful, My Journey from Self-Clothing to Self-Acceptance. Um, until then, have a really wonderful weekend and a great day.